I don't know that we're going to see large cuts. If I were having to bet, and I wouldn't go to bet, but if I did, I would say that we may see some small cuts sometime starting in the summer of next year, and they're going to be done very slowly. You're listening to 22 Minutes in Lending, your go-to podcast for insights on all things lending, from lending practices, regulatory updates, how to enhance lending efforts, and more. In each episode, host Vince Passion connects with industry leaders to discuss the latest trends and happenings around the lending industry. Let's dive into the latest in lending. Welcome everyone to 22 Minutes in Lending. I'm your host, Vince Passione, and I'm really looking forward to our next guest, Alabama Credit Union Chief Lending Officer, Benson Bowling. Benson's an Alabama native, and he's been in the credit union industry for 34 years, 30 of it ACU. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So without further delay, let's start these 22 Minutes in Lending. Benson, welcome, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, man. It's glad to be here. So Benson, why don't you give us a little background on the credit union? About two years ago, I had a chance to sit with your CEO when he was telling us about this acquisition due to the bank. Obviously, you've been pretty acquisitive and growth is a big part of the key strategy at ACU. It is. We've been around for 60 years or so. I have to check the calendar to make sure I've got that right, but it's in that neighborhood. We began as the University of Alabama Employees Credit Union, and we've expanded to multiple different segs over the years, including some large manufacturing outfits, including Mercedes-Benz, Pfeiffer Wire, which is an international wire company, and Airbus and Olsel and, and quite a few others in addition to the University of Alabama. And we've added community charters across the state uh, as well. And we have a charity that uh, feeds hungry children with secret meals for hungry children. And those who join the association for that are also eligible for membership. So we've got a pretty broad footprint. Our growth has come over the last two years from two segments of our loan portfolio. Primary, I'm, I'm talking about the lending growth. That would be our commercial real estate which is 90% of our commercial loan portfolio in our automobile portfolio, which is primarily driven, the growth is driven by our indirect operations. So let's talk back to the portfolio. So about 1.3 billion, it looks like looking at your June 5300 report. Let's start on the auto side. So on the auto side, it looks like growth is in the indirect side. You got a pretty large direct portfolio. We take a look on the auto side. Average price of a new auto is about $46,000. Average price of a used is about 26. Interest rates now and payments are up. Average payment on that new auto, I think, is about seven fifty. First off, how do you feel about the consumer right now dealing with those kind of payments? And also, term is up. Well, it's really kind of a scary time for consumers, and we've watched the, that average price go up. And you always think you're going to get to a place where it'll sort of top out. And, and sadly, we've seen it continue to grow. It's not that uncommon to see a fairly conventional pickup truck come in at a price tag seventy five thousand dollars, which really for those of us who've been doing lending for very long, that sort of staggers the imagination. And the rates impact that monthly payment as much as the average price of the vehicles do. So for consumers right now, it's extremely difficult. And I think it is contributing to some factors that bring some real uncertainty into the auto lending landscape. Now, you you said growth for you. What percentage of the portfolio is direct versus indirect? Present time, indirect accounts for probably 75 to 80% depending on the month and direct is Got it. And on the LTV side, are you concerned? I mean, I look and I was at dealer track for many years and we had a leasing business and residual values are, are pretty tough, right? When you see residual values start to collapse in the industry, these prices are pretty high. Are you concerned about the pricing and are you concerned about what might happen on residuals in the future? I am a little concerned about that. I do think we will see some pullback of values of all those that'll be 
substantial over the course of the next year or 18 months. And there's no doubt it'll impact losses on our repossessions and those types of things. We're already beginning to see people who are doing voluntary surrenders on vehicles that are much higher than usual pace. And I think it's driven by the fact that they're so upside down in their vehicle's value. It's not uncommon for us to have someone pull up an automobile outside one of our branches and park it, and they're not even past due on the loan. I think it's just a frustration with the valuation or perhaps getting ready to trade and looking at what they're up against in the trade you know, value. So we're, we're dealing with that today, and I think we'll see a little more of it. So for the industry, there's no doubt we're going to see losses increase a little bit as those residual values begin to drop. We don't do leases in our portfolio, so we're not as exposed on that part of it. And the leases live and die by the residual values, you know. So we, we do traditional lending. And to the extent we have exposure there, it's because the term got a little longer. But we've seen 96 months terms and that type of thing. We have not gone to those terms internally. Our longest term is 84. I guess the biggest change we've seen is more people opting for the 84-month term over 72. So, Now, look, at trying to make a payment work, and that's been the big challenge. And negative equity becomes a real challenge, right? When they start going in for trades, that's going to be a problem over time. Well, let's move over to small business lending. So you got a pretty large portfolio. It's almost $300 million, I think, based on the call report. So first, let's start off with, is there a specific segment that you go after on the small business side? Well, commercial real estate makes up most of that. And we have a blend of what you might expect. In fact, if you count the loans, which are member business loans, but not classified as commercial according to regulation, we're actually just over $400 million now. So it's a substantial part of our portfolio. But uh, a lot of that is rental home. 25% of the portfolio are one four family dwellings that are just for rent. We have a substantial portfolio of multifamily apartment buildings, that type of thing. We have some owner-occupied commercial, some non-owner-occupied. There's a mix of those in there. And we do some construction development, though it's a relatively small part of our overall operation. Commercial real estate is 90% plus of that. We do equipment and the things you might expect, fleet vehicles, those type of things. But 90 to 93% of that portfolio is going to be commercial real estate at any given time. Now, lots of discussion about commercial real estate. We were chatting before the call about it, right? This whole move to, you know, people are working from home. People aren't going to malls anymore. How do you feel as you think about how you manage all this? How do you deal with a portfolio like that when you look at what's happening in commercial real estate? And we we're chatting also at some point, right? There's this big refi cliff that's going to happen. And it's probably within the next year or two. So we have always maintained concentration limits on various loan types in our commercial portfolio. And over the past five years, we've tried to keep an eye on the trends. And those trends have been away from, well, at least can some uncertainty on the on the retail place. So if you've got a traditional shopping center or mall, that's going to be repurposed in a lot of cases to something entirely different, or the building structure there is going to be used for maybe service industries as opposed to what it had been prior. And that casts some uncertainty on the long-term valuation of those. Now, if you've got outstanding guarantors in a very good location, that's going to have high traffic odds are very good that you'll be okay in terms of your value. But We've tried to limit our exposure in the retail space, and we've never done very much in the, particularly the metropolitan large office complexes that are being affected by that. I do think that's going to have an impact on the industry. Fortunately, in our portfolio, we have very little of that type property. So I think for Alabama Credit Union, we're, we're in good shape. But I do think you've got to manage for all grades. You've got to keep a close eye on your concentration risk policy and make sure that those limits are set where they should be. And then just try to manage from there. You want to serve your members. And we've got 
a large group of commercial members that we've built relationship with over the, the last 20 years that we've been making commercial loans. And so when they come to you for their financing needs, you want to try to do what you can to meet those. And trying to balance between the needs of the member and those concentration risks, it's just a delicate balance sometimes, but you really have to focus on it. So let's move to the mortgage side of the business. So I noted you've got pretty large mortgage portfolio here. First off, how is demand going these days? And from a funding perspective, when you think of what's happening to this consumer, right? I mean, 30-year mortgages are at 8%. Now, for me, my first mortgage is at 12%, but that was back in the 80s. <laughs> right. So, so there's a lot of moving parts in the mortgage world right now. Demand for new mortgages that we have is probably 80-plus percent home equity lines of credit. And that's because everyone's holding on to those 2.9 and 3.25% mortgages they got when rates were as low as they were for long. Having the rate floors as low as they were for that extended period of time, you know, people had their loans and they became accustomed to be able to refinance and take money out at a very inexpensive rate and pay all credit cards and those types of things. Well, all that's gone today. And instead, people are holding on to those mortgages, making their minimal payments in a lot of cases. So we're being impacted from both sides. We see the demand moving to HELOC. We also see the roll-off that we get accustomed to every month limited to those minimal payments for the most part on mortgages as people hold on to those. And I think we work through Part of the uh, difficulties that all the financial institutions are facing as of today's date, I guess. And I would look out over the course of the next year, and I think that will begin to get a little better. Things change. People need to move. They need to upsize or downsize or move to a new town for career changes. So at some point, we're not going to see people holding on those loans forever. But right now, we're working those home equity lines of credit applications as they come in and, and meeting people's needs that way. But it's a challenge, in particular for the consumer who is considering that move that they really need to make. Because if you have to sell your house and maybe you make a nice premium on, on it in terms of capital gains over the time you've been there, but you're looking to move into a 7% loan when in the past you've had a 3%, that's a huge impact on how much house you can then buy. And, and with the property values elevated, it's kind of a double whammy for some people who are really needing to make a move right now. And I think that's causing some one other way that consumers are seeing some pain in this market right no, it's interesting. We moved very heavily into home improvement lending, but on, on the unsecured side, and we debate constantly internally how much of that is is being driven by just what you went through, right? Consumers own a mortgage. That's where they believe. They own a mortgage, not a home now. That and stay at home, right? People are, are expanding their homes. But we always debate why someone would take a variable rate HELOC versus a fixed rate, you know, unsecured type product. But that, ex that explains some of it, right? The consumer is sitting there and saying, as you said, the trade-off is I can sell the home, right? Well, I can't borrow against it the way I would like to. Now, you hold these mortgages from a funding perspective, which is unusual, right? Many of the credit unions will sit there and sell these because of the fixed interest rate risk. Hello, this is Margie Click, CEO and President of Agriculture Federal Credit Union. As a $360 million credit union, we're always looking for ways to innovate and expand our financial solution offerings to attract new members. That's why for nearly a decade, we've been partnering with Lenti to attract and acquire new credit union members. Right. Well, and traditionally, we have held all of our loans in our portfolio, but up until know, three or four years ago, we really didn't do a lot of extended fixed rate loans. 20 years was probably the longest term that we had up until about four years ago. As we look through our ALM 
modeling back then, we were able to some 30 year fixed lending and we sort of put a cap on it to make sure we didn't go too far with that. And, and we portfolioed those loans. We didn't go very aggressive into that sake of the lending spectrum. We have partners, members who come in and say, I absolutely need a 30 year fixed. And maybe we've reached our concentration limit or back in the years when we didn't do those at all. We have referral partners that we're able to send them to. And then, so we maintain the relationship. And so it's a win for everyone. And we have in the advent of the rate hikes we've seen over the last 18 months, we have discontinued the 30 year product here as well. So right now, the longest term that we would do on a fixed loan is 20. But because rates are where they are on those, we have for, for the limited number of people who are making requests for purchase money and, and refinance money, we see those folks electing maybe a 7-1 arm or a 5-1 arm so they can get a little lower rate. And then I think everybody is sort of betting on the uh, hope that during that five or seven years fixed rate, that there'll be an opportunity for rates to drop and they refinance it to something that's fixed at that time. And so that's where we are. And, and really, it's a very small segment of what we're, we just don't have much demand for those purchase loans running. And so, Benson, you talked about term, and we've seen past SVB, everyone turning around and really getting concerned about staying short. But as interest rates now, we've had 11 of these rate hikes in 17 months. You know, Powell may do one more. And then after that, the question is, at what point do you, do you see the horizon sort of showing up where the next thing is rates coming down and locking in some of the long-term fixed rates makes some sense. I mean, you've lived through this, and I certainly have. So where's that tipping point where you go from staying short to saying, well, I need to put some longer term assets on the books and lock in on some of these high rates? Well, Vince, if I were a little better at making those types of prognostications, I would probably closer to retirement. And, and as we discuss this, I hope that nobody will take anything I say and go make investment decisions in their bond portfolio or anything. But as I look out over the horizon, I do anticipate we could have one more. I would like to think that's it for a while. And the Fed in an election year, we're coming up on 2024. It remains to be seen how aggressive they'll be during election year. I think that traditionally they haven't done quite as much on that. And I do think that they have been very aggressive up until now. They've increased rates very quickly and, and quite a bit. I mean, in a traditional ALM model, and you normally try for a up 300 or down 300 sort of approach to that, you don't ever... Uh, model for a up 550 in an 18-month period. I mean, it's just something a little unprecedented. So if we look at the end of the year, we begin to see things level off. And I guess the big question is how long does it remain level? And when do we anticipate some type of drop? And as you know, the bond market and a lot of the economists were predicting that we would be approaching that. If you go back to January, so this year, they thought that today in September, well, September, October, we would begin to see these cuts. And that has not come to pass. And the economic data continues to give us a lot of uncertainty. We see some things that look like they are showing positive signs that things are slowing down and that the rate heights are taking effect. And then we see others that seem to be very resilient in the economy, which would lead you to believe that flat or pause period may be much longer. Personally, I think probably by Q2 of next year, we're going to know a lot more than we know today. And I, I think cuts sometime next year are likely. I don't know that we're going to see large cuts. If, if I were having to bet, and I wouldn't go to bet, but if I did, I would say that we may see some small cuts sometime starting in the summer of next year. And they're going to be done very slowly because I think the economy is still going to continue to be a little stronger and, and than perhaps the Fed has anticipated this point. So Benson, going back to my question then, when that milestone occurs, do you see yourself and your peers starting to look at term 
and seeing a longer term being more beneficial. Because most of the creditors we talk to today, they're very concerned about term. And obviously, if we look at the way the NCAA exams are going these days, right, one of the things they're looking at is term, right? And right. that net evaluation. Right. You've got to be careful and make sure that you manage how much you have in those long-term assets. I do think that by Q1, Q2 of next year, particularly if we've had a period of pause, you'll see people more willing to extend those terms out a little bit because the expectation will be that we're not going to continue to see the increases we've seen. So yes, I think you'll see those moderate and some more options come into the market. We'll still have everyone kind of keeping an eye on liquidity and the and various things that may present for us to deal with. And that will weigh into it. I also think consumer expectations will play a role as well because Back to my earlier point, you can't see people hold on to their 3.0 or 3.25 mortgage forever and life changes come around. When the consumers perceive that perhaps things are leveling out and the rates are, are moving in the right direction, I think we'll see more activity in the purchase money loans and those type of things, which will open things up a little for everyone. No, exactly. So let's move to delinquencies and the concern around the state of the consumer. So Everyone seems to be tightening up their credit boxes. There's a concern that delinquency rates are going to start to, to increase. I was looking at your 5300 report. Yours are actually pretty low. So how are you managing this? I, I really can't say we've done very much differently than we always have. We try to be very conscious of our underwriting policies, and we're fairly conservative in the way we do that. And we try to, when we do take risks, we do it based on reliable factors that have proven, you know, reliable for us over many years. The delinquency we've seen right now is actually 30, 40 basis points higher than we're normally accustomed to. So I do think that we will all see some increase in delinquency over the next year. I don't think that's really something we're going to have to debate a whole lot because the steps the Fed has taken, the inflation everyone has seen over the last year and a half, two years, the demands on people's budgets, I mean, the people having to rely on credit cards to maintain the lifestyle they've had, or even just to make ends meet, even if it's not a lifestyle issue, just being able to put food on the table and take care of their expenses for, you know, kids, school supplies or whatever it may be, you take that into consideration, take into consideration what we've discussed about how your car loan is being affected. I mean, you could have a situation where your car dies, your engine dies, and, and you had a, a payment of $350 a month, and now you got to pay $700 a month. I mean, all these things factored in together are putting a lot of demands on everyone's budget. And so I do think that delinquency is going to be something everyone got to keep a close eye on over the next year. And then you can do everything you can to mitigate that. Uh, some of the factors that are going to impact us are already in your portfolio. So these elevated LTVs on automobiles, that's going to weigh in. I think, you know, we, we've seen some people pull up at the credit union and surrender a vehicle that's not even fast due because they don't normally give an explanation. But what we expect that is due is because people feel like they're upside down in their car or maybe the payment's just to a point where their budget can't deal with it anymore until they, they bring it. I just, I think we're going to see people struggling on these things, at least for the next year. So let's go back to liquidity. So you know, it's interesting. I had a, a previous guest on, we were chatting about, we're not operating in a world of zero gravity. In the last 15 years, interest rates were pretty low almost negative, and deposits just had the tendency of staying put. And then $45 billion of deposits flowed out of SVB in a matter of hours, and suddenly you see the consumers are moving money from institutions pretty rapidly, just shopping for rate. And, and I always look at these deposit betas, right? And the last time we saw these rate increases around 14, 15, what happened was it took about three years, right, for there's a lag 
as credit unions and banks repriced their saving products to get close to the Fed funds rate. But if you look at this time, it's almost lockstep, right? That beta is tracking right alongside of it. So how do you operate in this world now, right? How do you operate in a zero gravity world where consumers can move money so quickly? How do you keep those deposits? Well, I think everyone right now is having to beat on rate. That, that's where the debate begins. And the relationship aspect that credit unions have always relied on with our member of that trust factor that's there. I, I like to think that has some impact. I know that we've got an awful lot of members who have, have stayed with Alabama Credit Union and perhaps it's a little negotiation. You know, hey, I, I've got a CD that's out there for a while and I don't want to pay the penalty, but I'd like to move it into a new CD that you're offering today. And sometimes you have to say, we'll waive the penalty for it to keep the money here. I think that's fairly common practice, but that trust factor, I hope, will be part of that. Credit unions have adjusted very quickly this time around. And I also think we have a little less exposure than some of your uh, banks, which may rely on a, a small group of very large depositors, because if those folks begin to move money, that's something that can show up in, immediately. And, and you've already alluded to that. But the typical credit union, I know it's true of us, the vast majority of our deposits are under that limit that are insured already. And we have supplemental insurance on ours in addition to the national insurance. So we don't have quite as much exposure where that's concerned a much bigger group of small depositors as opposed to a small group of very large sponsors. So I hope that gives us a little buffer against some of these factors as well. Yeah, it's, we were looking at this recent announcement of Plaid and Pinwheel, and you're a seg-based credit union, correct? I mean, mostly university-based. So I'm assuming that a lot of these deposits that come in, these are direct deposits from folks' paychecks, correct? Well, okay, so we are a credit union, and we have a lot of very large seg groups that we work very closely with. But we also hold a community charter and we also have a charitable organization that people who join that charity can be members of our credit union as well. So we really have a pretty broad spectrum there. And we do have an awful lot of folks who are exactly as you described, the checking account with the payroll deposit coming in. And, and we're, that's something we're always trying to grow. And it does give us a buffer against some of these things. But we are, just like everybody else, part of our effort to grow our deposits has been strictly able to rate. And we do have folks that will move away from us or to us because of that, that don't necessarily fit into that same relationship. Yeah. It seems like it's all about rate right now. And I think trust is an important factor as you covered. I, I think it is. And and certainly that's the trust that you have with your membership base and you've run a, a great organization. So well, listen, we're going to leave it there, Benson. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in and please subscribe to the podcast so you can listen to future episodes. And we'll see you all back here at the next 22 Minutes in Lending. Thanks, fans. Thank you for listening to the 22 Minutes in Lending podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You'll find links to any resources mentioned in the show notes. If you're enjoying our show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review.